This week on TWIP, Adobe ships CS5, HTML5 versus Flash, which should photographers use, and special guest Victor Cahiao, the typical Mac user and typical Shutterbug podcast, joins us. All that and more coming your way next on episode number 147 of This Week in Photography. Welcome back to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today, uh, we've got a little bit of the old, no offense guys, and a little bit of the new here live in the studio in, in, at Twit Cottage in Petaluma with me is Mr. Sil Arena. Hey, Sil. Hey, Frederick. It's great to be here. It's good to have you here. I mean, you were, you were already up in the area doing stuff with Google, right? So... I just kind of waylaid you on your way back to Pat. Yeah, conveniently. <laughs> Google is uh, close to where you picked me up, so yeah. it was easy to do. Exactly. Got to love the, the Starbucks rendezvous. So thanks for coming on the show. Um, also coming to us from Southern California um, is Mr. Joseph Lenaski of ApertureExpert.com. Hey, Joseph. Good morning. Good to have you back. You've been around the world, and, and now you're back again. How are you doing? I am just for a short time, and then I'm going to leave again. You know, <laughs> yeah. as it is, <laughs> cooling your jets a little bit. Trying to. Very cool. And also, Mr. Ron Brinkman is joining us from sunny Southern California, where I have a sneaking suspicion the weather is crazily amazing down there today. Hey, uh, Ron. Hey. Good morning. The weather is beautiful, yes. I know. Cause you know how I know that? Because the weather is insanely beautiful up here. So if, yeah. it's, if it's beautiful up here, it must be uh, like Pandora down there. So Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> quite the nice day. Yep. So good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show, guys, everyone. Um, and so, you know what? Let's just jump into stuff here. There's, uh, I just want to jump right into the news. And the first story here is um, about Adobe. So Adobe is shipping their CS5 product line. I mean, they announced it a while back, but now it's actually dribbling out into real users' hands. And, of course, all the marketing speak of 20, 250 new product features, yada, 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 all that stuff. So that's great. You can check all that out online. But what I wanted to get an idea of from you guys, from the, the brain trust here of people who have presumably been using the application forever and ever, first of all, uh, from Sill, uh, I know you've been in Photoshop since the beginning of time. <laughs> so Just Photoshop 3. It's just, okay, yeah. so Photoshop 3. Yeah, and so I still have my original disc. You still have, what, it's a floppy, right? Did it come I'm <laughs> Is that what it was called? It broke in half when I picked it up last week. You usually had to type the code in from the back of the magazine. So what uh, you – I know you may not have CS5 yet, but you presumably have seen the feature set that yeah. they've announced, like the content-aware stuff and all right. that. What are you, you going to jump into it? You know, I always jump. I always give Adobe my money. Whether I, – I hate to say it. I'm a total big. sucker. It's like, yeah, I want – CS5, I want it now. I'll, yeah. I'll scrape together the coin to get it. Yep. Because every time they come out with a new generation, my life gets a little bit easier and a little bit harder, learning the new feature set. It's yeah. like, but I have to say, you know, I'm, 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 I've made a lot of jokes in the last couple of weeks about the content-aware fill. Mm-hmm. And I did a workshop in San Francisco to 40 students on Saturday. It was at Google yesterday. Every group of photographers I'm talking to, I said, you've got to decide, are you going to be a photographer behind the camera or a retoucher in the future? Um, content-aware fill, great feature, but let's get it right in the camera. Yeah. And so it's given me a whole new platform in terms of educating shooters how to be shooters and then their life actually in post will be a heck of a lot easier yeah 
Ron Brinkman, what about you? Are you are you going to jump over the uh, the chasm into CS5? Mm, probably not. I mean, it, it's a it's an expensive package, obviously, and um, you know, I find myself going into Photoshop every now and then. And when you when you need to, you definitely need to. Uh, it's a it's a tough call. I mean, yeah, quite honestly, what I'm really hoping is that I can find somebody to give me a you know a free copy for somebody that used to work at Adobe, but failing that, here we go. Uh, I, I probably, I probably will not upgrade. I think it's, um, there's some great stuff in there, but you know, so much of my workflow is not about retouching. It's, it's about, and, and what, what there is, is something that I can already do in aperture now. Um, it's a tough call. We'll kind of see. Yeah. So you're, you're on the fence. You're going to wait and see for a while. And then if you can't, con somebody into giving you a free copy then you may spring for it <laughs> yeah you know i suspect it would be the kind of situation where if i ended up doing a job or finding myself in, in you know a scenario where i just needed some of the features and it was just you know there was a, a, yeah, a good business what, reason for it what kind of position would you find yourself in where you you're like i can't i'm not going to get this job unless i have cs5 i mean i want it too and i'll probably in, ultimately end up getting it but i'm wondering what like is is there something that you can't do? I mean, uh, notwithstanding yeah, well, the content aware no, stuff, but is it just that we're geeks and we want it, or is it that oh, I mean, it's going to make my life yeah. better? Well, and, and that's you know a lot of it is most of the kind of work that I would do is not going to require even you know the full creative suite because there's other tools I have for doing kind of the visual effects, um, you know, stuff that would it would be in uh, in some pieces of this. But for Photoshop per se, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in there is more convenience kind of stuff. Uh, so content aware fill is great, a great time saver, but, you know, if I only use that four or five times in, in a year, it's, you know, several hundred dollars is not worth the time I would save. Um, same thing goes for a lot of that stuff. You know, puppet warp is an interesting feature. Uh, I, I'm curious how much damage it'll do to a, an image, but it's just not the kind of stuff that I would tend to need. The, the edge detection, the, uh, masking kind of tools are an interesting case because there are times where if you really have to crank through and do a lot of stuff, you may decide this is just going to make my life so much easier by using this, uh, and I do it. So everything's kind of on the border, and I could see, like I said, I could see myself. There's something I found myself having to do, and I just sort of do the cost-benefit analysis, and like you know, my time is going to be worth more than, or at least approaching what it would cost for me to upgrade. Then I'll go ahead and do it. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's almost like the the. You remember the days like Sill when you moved into CS3. And you got layers and all. <laughs> layers? You, There's yeah, layers in Photoshop. Like when did that happen? And, and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, it's almost it's that that magic around the release of this new version of Photoshop seems to be. It's not as much of a pop as it was back then. Because back then it was like, wow, we're getting all these. You know, okay, yes, I absolutely needed that feature. Like when layers came out in mm-hmm. Photoshop three, right? When when layers showed up, it was like, okay, finally, I can save this and I can have multiple iterations of my comp and all this stuff in one document rather than doing save as and change the name kind of redundancy. But those were fundamental things. Uh, it seems like we're getting into pushing technology now when a lot of people are probably saying, like Ron just said, you know, yeah, it's great, but, you know, I may I may hold off for a bit. You know, I think, it, I mean, we're all photographers. We're all talking about photography here, but I think the real value in staying up to date um, is in the multimedia aspects. There's there's interdenominational components to CS5 that I'm not even aware of, but I know if I don't have it on my computer, I'm never going to discover what they are and never figure out how to put them into my workflow. Yeah. And, you know, I look at it and say, well, 
they're going to get my money because I want to have the software around. If it's around, I'm going to explore it. If I don't have it, I'm never going to explore what they've come up with. And yeah, I like to make you know a lot of jokes at the expense of content to wear fill. But I really think as we push the boundaries on photography and say, all right, let's get sound in there. Let's get motion in there. Let's integrate it with the web. And all of these fantastic technologies are coming together. That's where the real magic has. And in my view, it's like, take my money because I want to see what's in the cigar box rather than yeah, on the and label. Then, and then at the, at the, I hate the phrase at the end of the day, but I'm going to say it mm-hmm. anyway. At the end of the day, <laughs> you are an educator, right? Yeah. So you have to know the latest and greatest stuff. So you have no choice. I, I at least have to have it. I don't have to know it. You know, I'm, I'm you humble. You have to be able to say, questions or yeah, you're going to fake it. So Joseph, Joseph Lenaski, amateur expert, um, the, uh, I want to aim the question at you, especially I, I saved you for last because you're the aperture expert and presumably you probably try to avoid going into Photoshop um, as much as you can. True or false? Well, that is true. But I guess the benefit of no longer being an Apple employee is I don't have to say that anymore. I actually can <laughs> oh, <you laughs> willingly mean, go you into mean Photoshop. You actually mean it now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I prefer to stay within Aperture. And of course, with Aperture 3, for the most part, you know, it's even more rare, as we've discussed on the show, that I do have to go into, uh, into Photoshop. But it is still a very, obviously, a very powerful tool. And there are times when you need it. And I think the point of needing to know it as an educator, because as you, of course, know, I do, you know, and we do uh, conferences and seminars and so on, not knowing the latest tools is probably not the best idea. So um, as much as I may not need the upgrade, I probably will be getting it sooner rather than later, uh, again, just so that I know what's going on. It's Mm kind of silly to, to be in this position and not know the tools. It doesn't look very good for you. Yeah. And looking at the, I've been playing with Aperture a lot lately and, you know, it, it's, it's come a long way from Aperture 2, definitely Aperture yeah. 3. Um, do you think, you know, taking off your, any, any sort of political remnants that you have in you, you know, <laughs> having worked at Adobe or at Apple and me having worked at <laughs> Adobe, uh, you know, sort of taking that all out of it, looking at the two applications, Photoshop and Aperture side by side, do you see a trajectory or a world that, Aperture will completely obviate or to a large degree obviate the necessity to have Photoshop? Is Apple moving in that direction, do you think? From the perspective of a photographer, probably. Because the the few things that you need Photoshop for right now, like layers and and the content aware fill is obviously a very powerful feature. That's the kind of thing that um you know I could totally see getting into Aperture somewhere down the line. So It'd be great to see that, um, you know, from for Aperture users, it'd be great to not have to spend the extra money for Photoshop because, as Ron pointed out, it is not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. So that's a lot of money to have to spend. So, yeah, I mean, if we can get all those features into Aperture, all the better. But, you know, you figure there's always there's always going to be those kind of fringe features that are there that just don't make sense for Apple to put into the product. So there's always going to be that select group that will still need it. But I think that that group is getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. Were you going to yeah, say, Ron? Well, you certainly got uh, a scenario where Apple doesn't have to worry about infringing on another product. Uh, you know, Photoshop and, and Adobe has this, this situation where they need to kind of, you know, they want to sell both products. Uh, and they probably have some sort of an incentive to not necessarily put everything from Photoshop into Lightroom, for instance. Uh, but having said that, I don't, I don't really get the feeling that they are actively keeping stuff out of Lightroom. I suspect this as much as anything an engineering issue of just why all this stuff isn't showing up in there. But yeah, you know, there's, there's sort of that that dual incentive that they have to keep both things separate, whereas Apple doesn't have that. But having said that, you know, I think Adobe Adobe's clearly got a a much deeper uh, set of tools available that they can put into Lightroom, and so it's going to be interesting to see if Apple can actually keep up with all the stuff that you know you still need to go out of Aperture or Lightroom and into Photoshop to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny. It, it, it just from a surface level and looking at it from the outside in, you know, looking at the two applications or the three applications. We got Photoshop. We've got Lightroom. We've got Aperture three. Aperture uh, looks like it's saying, okay, we're going to give the the advanced amateur and the the pro photographer all the stuff they need in one spot to get all the stuff done. And we're going to let you go out to Flickr. We're going to go to Facebook. You're going to be able to create slideshows, all this stuff, but you can do it in one app and be able to edit the images in one spot and then get off and get back to shooting. And then you conversely, you look at the Adobe side um, and you have all the same ability roughly, but it's, it's, spread out. So instead of having everything cohesively in one app, you've got all these these pillars of power, you know, if you will, in Photoshop, um you can still do books, you know, in the Adobe world, but you're going to use InDesign kind of thing. Um you've got much deeper tools in terms of the algorithms that they use to decode some of this stuff. Like I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about, you know, in Lightroom, one of my favorite tools in Lightroom is the is the uh, what's the tool that uh, clarity? It's the clarity slider, and how in Lightroom two it started zero and went up. Then you could essentially add clarity, but in Lightroom and uh, actually in Lightroom one, in Lightroom two they added the ability to drag it to the left and go negative clarity. So in an instant, you you can you can create smoother skin and stuff like that. So that's some serious crazy math right there to do that kind of stuff. And I tried to do that, the same, replicate the same thing in Aperture 3, and I couldn't. So not to say that Apple can't get there with Aperture 3, but it's, it's, it, it looks like Apple, from my perspective, is focusing on making this great experience, which is wonderful, great experience for photographers to get in, get your images in there, and share them out, and then get back to shooting. Adobe is going, instead of going wide, they're going deep on these features in there that allow you to get in and, and massage those pixels in these crazy ways that we haven't been able to, to b- before. Joseph, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I think like it when I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> right I, I do think it's interesting to, to you know, think about where Apple's going to go with, with it because it's very true that they, they're not trying to sell this massive suite. They're trying to provide a single tool that is... Uh, sort of end to end, and, and you know, if, you, if you just look at Lightroom side by side with Aperture, Aperture does a lot more, you know, a broader set of things. Um, but I, you know, I agree, and I, I'll be the first to say it. Having been in the midst of you know Apple, I mean, worked with the development team. This was several years ago, but you know, it's taken them a while to build up the expertise to really even to understand a lot of this uh, image processing stuff that they're doing now. And I, and I and I know the team that's in place now has gotten so much better, and they really, you know, they finally sort of have a core competency in doing some of this so i'm hoping that they can kind of kick it into gear a little bit more too on the image processing side yeah yeah and then that that's a good segue into the second story i wanted to chat about and that's um again about adobe they, they posted a preview of the lens correction technology that's in camera raw 6 and lightroom 3 and essentially that is to you know, say you're shooting a scene with a fisheye lens and you get that sort of distortion. Now within the software in Camera Raw and Lightroom 3, you can say, hey, I was shooting with this 16 millimeter lens um, from this manufacturer and it will automatically do the corrections to fix the lens or to fix the distortion, giving you a somewhat flatter or more true to life image. Now, um, Syl, have you used any lens correction stuff like that before? I, and I've or do you like the distortion in your shots? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you fix that? I yeah, let's go the other way. Let's get the pre-distortion. <laughs> Call it art. Um, I think this is fabulous technology. Another demonstration. Uh, <laughs> My chair keeps dropping. 
Every time you laugh, you're cheerful. I think I think the lens correction is going to be really valuable and greatly appreciated. Um, it's not widely known, but each lens, each manufacturer has some peculiar aberrations, distortions, and so on. And frankly, it doesn't matter how much you pay for the lenses. They all have unique personalities. So I think this is, is going to be really well-received. And I'm, I hope there's an on-off button in case you want to be artistic and let the barrel distortion roll. But if you're in a production situation or you just want to create great images and not have to go back in and take care of it, having this integrated is going to be huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's an example of what I was talking about in terms of how Adobe is looking at some of the just problems that are inherent in optics and photography and that level deeper than just how do you share this and how do you organize and how do you, you know, do effects and crop and all that stuff. It seems like Adobe's looking a level deeper into, okay, these are the problems that photographers have and this is how we can make the overall craft of photography better. So, and it, you know, it's great on both sides. You know, I, I need all that stuff in one thing, <laughs> you know, all the aperture stuff. I need the Lightroom and the camera raw stuff. In the ideal world, as a consumer, I would like the best of everything in one spot so that I can import everything, do all my adjustments, make share it out to Facebook, Twitter, wherever, make albums, publish those, create books if I want to, and then get back to shooting again. I don't want the software to be my limitation. I have to think about, oh, I want to create a book now, so I need to go over here. Oh, I want to do this. You know, It needs to just get out of my way and let me be a photographer. Yeah, the software needs to be transparent in what you want to do. Yep, yep, Absolutely. So the, uh, the the lens correction is is one that kind of uh, hits a special chord with me because uh, we had that technology in the software that Apple bought when they acquired the, the little company I was working for. Oh, really? So yeah, so I know that Apple has had access to this technology, and I tried to get it into Aperture before Aperture even existed. You know, but pre, prior to the 1.0 release, we did it differently. And there's an interesting tact on it in, in the Adobe version. You know, you actually sort of put in. Uh, a lens type and uh, and it will sort of automatically correct it. Yeah, and we we didn't have this wide database of uh, lenses that we characterized. So the the method that we used in the, the software was called Shake. Uh, it was a compositing tool that I worked on. But the method we used was uh, a more general purpose one, where all you would have to do is click on three points of a line that's supposed to be straight, but was in fact curved due to the lens aberration, uh, and it would just use that to determine what it needed to do, and it would straighten it back out. So it's pretty neat because it's very quick. You didn't have to, you know, necessarily have lenses calibrated. It would just be, oh, you know, look at the edges of this frame are clearly bowed out a little bit. This, this, you know, pillar is not straight. And you just click, click, click on the three, you know, on three points that define that curvature. And it would just pop it into straightness. So that's the kind of thing that I know they have the technology sitting somewhere. But God knows if they have the ability to kind of do the archaeology on the code at this point. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, but. Yeah, I think I think the vector that we can see with the way these apps are going is it's only positive for yep. us, and it just means that folks that train on this stuff, like Joseph and Usil, are going to be and me to some degree are going to be busy <laughs> 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 experimenting and learning this stuff, so that when we're in front of a hundred people, we can say, "Hey, this is how this works." Exactly. You know? So that's awesome. All right, uh, there's a funny story in the lineup for us to to chat about. Um, apparently. <laughs> And I, I can, to I say can about almost this. honestly say I can I can almost say that Nikon probably would not do a marketing move like this, <laughs> but Canon is uh, bringing out a Jackie Chan branded Rebel T2i for the Chinese market. Now, would you buy a Jackie Chan branded Canon camera, Silverina? <laughs> you know, it's probably got some great image stabilization technology <laughs> built into it. Uh, 
you know, I, I looked at this last week and I, I cracked up, but I love Jackie Chan. I Never think he's a great mar- human. Don't let the marketing guys get a hold of the mark. Uh, the, don't let the interns get a hold of the marketing budget. Is <laughs> it does come with a special custom green case. Oh. Eye of the Dragon Green case, as I recall. So. Wow. Your photography will be so much better. If because you Jackie can shoot Chan like Jackie Chan. <laughs> shoot like Jackie Chan. You can climb walls like a spider monkey and shoot from the top of that wall. You'll be good. It's Joseph, always my aim when I'm out shooting to make sure that everybody knows that I have a camera that costs $1,000 more than it should have. You know, that, that's, exactly. that's my goal when I'm walking down the streets of uh, any city in the world. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. it. That's, it's just a, it's a brand. So now, Steal know. me, I think is what that says uh, right there. Steal me, I think exactly. is what it says on the strap. Exactly. No, I, it's, it seems a little silly, but I mean, people obviously love this sort of thing. And you look at the, um, uh, the iPod, back remember the U2 iPod, the black iPod yes. with the red dial. And the yes, you're absolutely right. I had, one, I had one of those. Oh, see, I was I was about to make fun of that, but um, maybe I shouldn't now. No, they gave that to me when I was at Apple. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, that's better. And I still no, have I mean, it. It's it's one of those products that you know there there's a fan base that will absolutely love it and pay the premium for it, and so why not? From a marketing perspective, it makes a lot of sense. So you can get people to spend extra money on something that there really is no reason to. It doesn't make the iPod any better. It doesn't make this camera any better. But you're a fan. Why not? Yeah, and and I just noticed in the press release it says there's only going to be two thousand and ten of them. Hmm. So, wow. apparently, in the Chinese calendar, that means something. What is it? What are they going to do with the other two thousand that yeah. they don't sell? <laughs> <laughs> eBay, baby, eBay. eBay. Look for Eye of the Dragon on eBay in a couple of months. You'll be styling. You know, think, think about it like sports memorabilia, right? People will have sports logos put on just about anything. You know, I just got a new ATM card from my bank, and they gave me this list of different card designs I could choose from, and there were like five pages of sports teams. Did like you get that's, this different, that's a huge though. market. I mean, that's yeah, but that's different. I mean, you know, we're image makers and creative people. I mean, it's like saying you're a, you're a painter and you're like, I want a customized paintbrush that has a picture of the Eiffel Tower on it and endorsed by Silarina and all this stuff, and that will make me a better painter if I have that. Who cares? I have the know? Frederick Van ATM card from the Bank of Hard Knocks. It has a negative. On there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put it in the machine and it just sucks your money the away. Your face comes up and laughs on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, as artists, do we really want um, the tools that we use to create art to be the way that we express ourselves? Or do we my <laughs> chair keeps <laughs> dropping? <laughs> I'm going to stay down here. Where's that button? I want to push it next. <laughs> you know, I, it's- <laughs> I completely lost my train of thought. It's up there somewhere. Nobody, um, nobody's going to believe that it's going to make them a better photographer. It's just, it's just fun. It's just a fun thing that people. I mean, I'm not going to buy one, right? I mean, if there was a you know one D Mark IV that was Jackie Chan branded, I wouldn't buy it. But there are people who who just you know it's fun for them. It's just a fun thing. You know, you you know we all put stickers on the backs of our iPhones or on our laptops to make them a little bit more unique and fun. And you know why not? It's just something to to be fun. But I don't think anybody believes it's going to make them a better photographer. Well, and if they do, then you know. A fool and his money. Yeah. Well, that, I put a I put a Jelliskin, and you can find them at jelliskins dot com, on the back of my uh, iPhone and my my MacBook Pro, just to make it different because everybody at work has the same computer, and yep. I just wanted mine to look a little different so I could pick it out of a crowd. You know, everybody has the same iPhones and all this stuff. So mine was more of a I could care less. You know what it looks like. I just wanted to be a little bit different. But yet not damage, but, but yet not damage the device. So when I get ready to sell it, I can just peel it off, and you know, it acts as a protector and all that. What were you gonna say, Joseph? But, but, uh, when I was in Beijing for the Olympics at the media center, the photographers would rush in and they'd all drop their cameras into a pile, and you'd literally have a pile of twenty or thirty 
you know, Canon 1D, Mark 3s, 1DSs, whatever, same lenses, and they all look the same. <laughs> At that point, you're going, wait, how do you know which one's yours? I actually had a little red tassel that I tied onto mine so I knew which one it was. Um, but, you know, hey, there's a way to stand out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So another story, guys, that's not in the in the, the lineup that, that we provided you guys, but the, is um, just this whole controversy around the HTML5 and Flash and all that. And we talked about it in a couple of shows back, but I wanted to talk just specifically about it a little bit from a photographer standpoint and find out if you guys in particular are planning on retooling your sites to support HTML5 or what, what, what are your plans around that? Like, so I know you, have, Oh, don't ask me first. This your time. <laughs> website is flash heavy. I've been there. What is yeah. speed lighting? Speed lighting, speed lighting, right. Speed lighting.com. Do you care? Are you going to keep it that way? Or are you going to try to have it retooled to be able to be viewed on different? Okay. Devices? So, here, so here's the confession about all my websites. I'm a huge fan of WordPress. I don't know how to code. I know how to surf for plugins and I like the open source community that WordPress is. Um, so, and I like the affordability of all that, okay? So, I've no doubt that when HTML5 becomes the ubiquitous platform, that there will be an, a number of plugins that a simpleton like me can go out there and make work on his websites. Um, from what I understand, and I'm absolutely no expert, it is a freight train that's coming down the tracks, but I don't think it's quite getting close to the station just yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, one of the lights on that freight train is, was Microsoft's announcement of the fact that IE9 is only going to support H.264, the video format that's in HTML5, and not Flash So as a default. So I'm, I'm wondering about that. Ron Brinkman, um, I know you're, you're, you know about this stuff because you, you sort of see the, the world as the matrix. What, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think about this? Are you... For the, the do you do you think HTML five needs to be or uh, let me rephrase that as a photographer or as photographers should we care about Flash versus HTML five or should we just if we're deploying Flash right now should we keep that as our website and then wait for the chips to lay where they're going to lay and then switch or what Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's right that you know there's going to be better and better tools coming out that are going to make it a lot easier to transition. It's not like you know, most things don't support uh, Flash, and I guess you kind of have to decide if you want, you know how much you want to target somebody browsing on uh, on an iPad to your, your site. I've never, I've never put up a site that was Flash based. I've never really liked sites that are Flash based because you just sort of lose navigation capabilities, and it's always like, all right, yeah, I got it, but I want to get into the meat of the site. I don't need this this you know pretty little opening. Some of them are nice, but the first time you see it is enough, and even then, most of the time you're not, you know, you're almost asking anytime you've got a site that. You land on it, and it's got this long intro that may have pretty pictures and music and all that. You're sort of asking the person that's coming to visit you to, you know, you're, you're taking time away from them. And I've always kind of disagreed with that as as a design philosophy for a website. I, I consider websites, you know, almost all the time to be kind of utilitarian tools. And I want, as a user, as a visitor to a website, I want to have total control over what I do on that website. I don't want to be hijacked and have to sit through something. So... You know, I guess my bigger advice would be is if you have a website that's, you know, flash-based and really relies on something like that, you should just reconsider uh, what you've done in the first place, not so much the uh, HTML part of it. You should reconsider your sins. (laughs) Yes. There's nothing wrong with Flash. I mean, in my opinion, Flash is, is great for what it is. I mean, I've heard all the arguments about being a resource hog and all that, and 
I've installed at a friend's suggestion click to flash on my machine so that I can click when I want flash to show up. And I like that so much better, but there's, there are lots of sites that I'm clicking on the flash cause I need it to load. And one in particular is like for, for TWIP and for some other things I'm working on, we're going to be doing some, some webinars that are open to the public that are going to be deployed in flash. Right. So I don't think that just doing a HTML five type site yet will be able to handle that level of, you know, um, application running in the browser type experience. Joseph, are you, are you, uh, what, what side of the fence are you on? Or are you just, you don't care? Oh no, I care greatly. I don't, I'm not a fan of flash at all. Um, I, I try to avoid it entirely on my site. There's only one little thing on my site. That's a little slideshow that's flash my feet around the world pictures, but, um, everything else is not. And I, I really don't like it. I like to be able to see it on my iPhone. I like to be able to see it on my iPad now that that's out without having to, um, you know, without having to have a separate, a separate browsing experience for that. Um, but like you said, it is a resource hog. I mean, every time a flashlight, a big flashlight kicks into gear, all the fans go on full blast on my on my laptop. That's not cool. And so you know that right there, if it was on your iPhone or iPad, it would be sucking the battery juice. So you know, that letter that, uh, that you know, open letter that Steve sent out a couple days ago, I guess, that's on Apple.com is, is very true about what Flash does. It is funny because, you know, you hear a lot of people complaining about Flash not being on the iPad or the iPhone, but then you talk to anybody who engineers for Flash, they complain about it, but then in the second breath, they'll say that they hate writing for Flash. So, no, I'm not a fan at all. Um, I've My videos that I have on my site are hosted now on YouTube because they uh, do both Flash and H.264. And actually, I was trying to use Vimeo because I really like the Vimeo player. Um, and they now have all H.264 playback on their site, but they haven't quite gotten the embed that yet. So if you embed a Vimeo, Vimeo movie, and this is a discussion that I had on Twitter and a bunch of people were helping me out with um, if you embed a site, uh, sorry, a Vimeo movie on your website, it only embeds the Flash right now. So that's something that they still need to get sorted out. So that that was unimpressive to me. So right now, all my video is based inside of YouTube. But yeah, I'm I'm not a Flash fan at all. Avoided at all costs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think in the end, for for us photographers, it, it's who cares about the technologies, right? That are behind all this stuff. It's, it's, that's not the point. The point is if we're deploying our work and presenting our work online, we want the widest audience for it. And we don't want any barriers between our work and people being able to see it. So if that means somebody, and we want the best experience. So if that means somebody's on, on flash and they prefer flash, then I th- on their on uh, whatever device they're on, I think they should be able to see it that way. If the path of least resistance is HTML5, I want that. You know, so yeah. I don't care about how the pixels show up on the screen. I just want them to show up, and I don't want people. They shouldn't have to know that. Oh, I need A, B, and C to see my stuff. You know, they should just right. be able to see your stuff. You know, yeah. And with Flash, that's that's exactly what's happening. Is those pixels aren't showing up on people's screens. But you know, your friend Moose Peterson, um, who was just tweeting a couple days ago about Flash, and someone had asked him why his site is in Flash and if he's going to get rid of the Flash. And he responded back, he's tired of this question because the reason he has Flash is copyright protection. It's a lot harder to steal the images when they're on the screen in Flash. And you know, I totally, I buy that, right? I mean, that that's a legitimate reason. So there's a, some protect level of protection that really should be built in um, to HTML5 a little bit better. But, you know, even if it's Flash, it doesn't stop you from taking a screenshot. If you want the image that bad, you're going to get it. That's true. So, yeah. yeah. So, Silarina, <clears throat> does it make you nervous when people say that Flash might be going away as a speed lighting expert? <laughs> no, because the people who hold on to it will be more passionate about it. They'll clean out the not-so-good ones. There you no. go. Awesome. 
All right, guys, let's uh, let's take a quick break. And um, actually, you know what? I don't want to take a quick break. I want to I want to talk about this last story real quick, and it's about a photographer who has jerry-rigged a Canon 7D to a radio-controlled helicopter um, to shoot. I mean, is he shooting video with this thing? Yeah, he's shooting yeah. video, short videos with a with this expensive camera connected somehow to a radio control helicopter now ron brinkman i know that you are all into this stuff flying the helicopter up stuff. and down the beach <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think about that would you do that is there room for that or is it just you know just yeah well you know it's uh clearly you have to have enough of a a, a financial uh war chest to be able to consider the concept <laughs> that this helicopter may not quite perform up to specs and you're gonna dip not your... to mention it landing in crowds unexpectedly <laughs> yeah exactly and, hey look somebody just gave me a helicopter and a camera exactly and a guillotine uh, yeah it's uh you're, you're gonna see so much more of this i mean you've seen a lot of people already doing it uh with smaller point and shoots and uh, it's kind of interesting to me that the helicopter technology is getting to where you can uh, you know carry the weight of a of a camera i actually this was Several months back when I was still living up in Seattle, um, spent some time talking to a guy. I was walking down the street early in the morning, and he had a, uh, a blimp, like a small blimp that fit in the back of a little trailer that he carried behind his car, and it, it was filled with uh, you know, helium or something. And he had the same sort of a rig, it looks like, where uh, he had a 5D uh, stuck below it, and he had sort of radio-controlled uh, pan and tilt uh, on the thing. And he was using it for still photography. Uh, and he would get hired to shoot sort of architectural photography of buildings as they were being built or if they just wanted a glamour photo from a different angle. So, you know, he would tool out there with his uh, trailer behind his car and uh, set, his, set his blimp up and have it go up, you know, a couple hundred feet in some cases, I guess. You know, all uh, this, and get a really interesting all, angle. All this stuff just sort of, still, this reminds me of the conversation we had in the car on the way up here about how you know process <laughs> like in the it was still and i were talking about uh you know like photography in the older days when you had to, when we were doing processing and still was talking about how i used to work on all these different uh processing techniques to to get different looks and photographs and that sort of thing and uh so you were saying that that sometimes it became all about the process and the photography at the end of the line there was just almost a side effect or residue right <laughs> and that's kind of what this stuff seems like with the helicopters and the blimps and all this no, technology and stuff is it about just people doing hobbyist kits or is it to get the photography i mean i don't know i i, I think it's, i mean sure some of it is just about hobby stuff but i think you know like the guy i was talking to with the blimp that is a very you know it's, he's got a business you know and and his whole point is that he needs to get shots from an angle that uh, are not easy to get otherwise you know you don't want to have a in the standard Take a take a photo from six feet off the ground because that's where you know the camera ends up whenever you're standing there. Uh, you know, as a photographer, you want to get a unique perspective on something, just like you want to have unique composition and you want to have unique lighting and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, sure, there's always going to be the hobbyist side of it, but I think there's a very real, sensible reason from a pure photographer's standpoint to have access to these kind of tools, uh, and you can do things that you couldn't do before. Yeah, what's going to set you know any photo apart from another is largely the angle, right? Where you get that picture made from. Um, I remember back in school, uh, Mark Kaufman, a professor who was a you know, quite a famous photographer in his time. He one of his things was he he had climbed up a lamppost to shoot some images of a uh, 
street scene or whatever it was, but he climbed up the lamppost to get it. So he got a different image than everybody else did. And we're talking you know, ages and ages ago. And he had uh, the cover of you know, Life magazine, I think it was, and became quite a recognized photographer because he knew how to get different angles. He didn't think like everybody else did and stand and say, sit and uh, hold the camera at six foot, like Ron just said. It's, it's a different position. And that makes all the difference. You get that camera into play for nobody else normally gets it or in the situation of a helicopter where nobody else can get it and you've got something totally unique to sell yeah yeah no i i agree with that totally yeah get the get the different angle and by any means necessary right all right so let's uh let's jump into this the interview for this week it's uh with a friend of mine uh a fellow podcaster uh it's a guy that runs the typical mac user podcast and the typical Shutterbug podcast. His name is Victor Cajial, and he's one of the reasons why I'm in podcasting today. <laughs> I'm here with Victor Cajial. He's a he's one of my influences when it when it comes to podcasting. I've been listening to Victor's podcast, the typical Mac user, for a while now. And he also has another podcast out called The Typical Shutterbug. He's the host of both of those podcasts and um you know i'll let him tell you all about them but i wanted to welcome victor to the show uh and to this podcast to talk about his podcast and also we want to dive into a little bit of photography which i know is his his secret passion so victor welcome to the show yeah it's my pleasure to be here thanks for having me on oh it's my pleasure so typical mac user let's start there you've been doing that podcast for how many years a little bit over four years, started out podcasting in 2005, way back in the days when we had small microphones, you know, <laughs> it was way back there. Typical PC user is how I started. And I dipped my toe into the waters of uh, the Mac by listening to another podcast, and I've never looked back. I stopped doing the PC show, been doing that typical Mac user show that's geared towards people that are new to the Mac or that have switched over, but I have a lot of listeners that are long-time uh, fans of the Mac as well because we cover a wide range of topics. And what kind of, what kind of topics is it? You know, it's, it's not specifically an iPad, iPhone kind of show. You're, you're going into tips and techniques and, and different things that the, the typical Mac user might want to know, right? Right, yeah. We don't do news. We don't, you know, there's great podcasts that do that. And we don't do a lot of commentary and and, uh, what's the next big thing. There's a lot of podcasts that do that. I do tutorials, heads down tutorials, how to's, step by step. So how you get from A to Z. Some things you may already know about your Mac or think you know. And some things that maybe you've never heard about because as computer users, we tend, we tend to kind of throw the manual away, right? Uh, but so I get into those topics and I end up learning a lot through doing it. And I end up teaching some folks that thought they knew new ways to use their Mac because we are probably, like our brains, we are probably using about 10% of what Macs can really do when you start diving in. Yeah, yeah. So what, over the years, over this, these past four years that you've been, you've been podcasting, what do you think is the, you know, one of the things that sort of sticks out into your brain as this has really changed the way that the world is perceiving podcasting? Well, it's the same thing that I get from listening to your show. It's the community aspect of it. The fact that you guys can sit there as a group of professional photographers, teach me stuff about something that I'm deeply interested in, but at the same time that you can reach out to the community and then this linking goes on, whether it's through Twitter, whether it's through your chat room, and this community thing that I never knew could exist you know, in zeros and ones. That's what makes it come alive. And then these become your Twitter friends. And then these become the people that are commenting on your pictures. And it goes on and on, as you know. And uh, that's what has me excited to this day about this medium of podcasting. 
So then you transitioned from typical Mac user over, or you didn't transition, you actually branched out into the typical Shutterbug podcast. Tell me about how that transition happened and, and why. Well, just like uh, with, with PCs or Macs, I mean, enthralled with anything having to do with technology. I've been taking pictures all my life, but I have been that guy, you know, that put it in autopilot, auto mode, you know, had a D70, had the stock lens that came with it and was out there shooting kind of blind, you know, and just thought that was good enough. And I have pictures all the way back to 2005 and those were okay. And then I said, well, you know, I learned an awful lot about the Macintosh computer when I started podcasting about it. I put myself out there and I said, here, I know nothing. (laughs) Join me in knowing nothing and then let me bring in these incredible photographers, authors, people in the photography community who have all, every single one of them been just a joy to work with. They're more than willing to come on. They want to sell books. They want to share their knowledge. I find that photographers are so giving of like what's under the cover. I couldn't even believe it. So I said, I'm going to take the same concept and I'm going to learn how to be a better photographer through this show, through teaching, through having people come on. And by golly, that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, and it's, it's, an, it's amazing how uh, you'd think people would be more closed, right? So you're like, if you just ask a person, hey, do you want to come on and just have a conversation? Nine times out of ten or even ten times out of ten, they'll say, yeah, yeah, sure. You know? And then when they do come on, they're amazingly open to share their their trials and tribulations and experiences with the world. So, yeah, I, I have to totally agree with you on that. Yeah, and so what I started doing is, okay, I started really understanding exposure. And, and I started getting into it and saying, yes, this is the kind of stuff I need to go back to the basics of what I'm doing. And then I said, so, Brian Peterson, why not contact him? I reached out to my podcast audience, and within a day, one of my listeners said, oh, I know Brian. I can get you in contact with him, but a bing, but a boom, Brian becomes like my second guest. You know, we have a yeah. great conversation about people like me, typical shutterbugs that don't know enough stuff from a Twinkie and how we figured that out. <laughs> you know, and then we go from there. We go to Trey Ratcliffe, we go to Chase Jarvis, David Dukeman, Michael Freeman. All of these people have come on and they've taught me a bunch of stuff that I can immediately, after I do the interview a month ahead of time, I go out and practice this stuff. I put out my pictures in Flickr, and then the community gets to share that. Oh, oh yeah, you. You were just on it, and it was great to have your insight. So that's why I'm doing the show, and I become a better photographer for it, a, a better enthusiast. I am not a professional. I'm an enthusiast, and I'm loving that I'm getting to use this medium of podcasting to become a better photographer, and I think teach a couple of people a few tricks, too. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So the the medium of, of podcasting, this digital mm-hmm. this digital uh, democ- democratization of how we can get our voices out into people's pockets, right? Right. Um, how, how do you think, in your opinion, having done this for so long, how do you think podcasting in general has influenced photography? So, you know, photographers, there's other things that have influenced us, like, you know, just the internet in general, of course, but Flickr and being able to share our files and, and comment on each other's stuff. And then, mm-hmm. you know, online tutorials through places like Kelby Training and Lynda.com, that kind of thing. But podcasting in particular, in your opinion, how do you think that has impacted us? Well, I think the impact becomes because of the commonality we have. Uh, in listening to podcasts about Macintosh, uh, in listening to podcasts about photography, like This Week in Photography, I started hearing these common themes. Though There was Scott Bourne doing This Week in Photography, talking about photography in a way that was very technical to me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I saw this kinship 
between my geeky size that loves to mess around with gadgets and just all the geek stuff that comes along with that. And then this other side of me, the musician side, because I was a professional saxophonist for years, that wanted to create something. And so I, I, by hearing these podcasts, I was able to say, hey, I bet I can take the geek within me and the musician within me and through photography kind of mash those two things up. Those, that connection would not have been made if it wouldn't have been between the commonalities between the podcasts around Macintosh and computers and photography. We have so much in common even though we're doing two things that if you were to set us in a room, people may say, no, we don't. Yeah, we do. Especially today in the digital world where we're touching, everything that we're touching has to do with a computer interface, with storage. We have so much in common. And so for me, podcasting was the link that brought those two separate things together. Yeah. And there's, I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this right now that are interested in and doing a podcast, but folks like me included, when I when I first mm-hmm. started in in podcasting or learning about this stuff, um, which by the way, thank you because you were one of the first podcasts that I ever subscribed to. Thank you. Um, but when I first started listening and learning, I was thinking, you know, this stuff is way too complicated. There's no way I'm going to be able to figure this out, or you know, it's going to take all this crazy gear, and I got to I'm going to have to build a radio station in my house in order to be able to be a, become a podcaster. You know, all these things. Can you sort of demystify it a little bit for, say, there's a photographer that's, that has an idea for a podcast. Say you want to do something on, you know, the world in HDR, you know, which is the title of Trey Radcliffe's book. But say they want to do something, um, you know, specific in, in the photography industry and they want to start up a podcast around it. What would be their first steps? Really easy. You have a computer, so you have you're almost all the way there. And from there, we really only need a couple of other things. A microphone. You could spend, I think, about $130 for uh, a microphone called the Blue Jetty right now. It is a USB-based microphone that sounds absolutely fantastic. You plug that guy into any computer that you have. You put a set of headphones. Yeah, your cheap ones that you use for whatever MP3 player you have. And then you have, hopefully, a recorder. If you have a Mac, you have built-in GarageBand. Couldn't be easier. And then you get a, a service like Libsyn. For $5 a month, they will give you... All of the down, uh, actually, you can download all you want. They charge you only for the upload. You can make it so simple to do that. And it's perfect for that niche photographer out there. You have those 50 people who are doing photography about this kind of flower. Well, you could start a podcast to that audience. That would mean so much. And that long tail effect, it's so easy to do. Um, so starting it, it's easy. You can go to podcast411.com, and there's great tutorials there on the left-hand side. He's done a great job of breaking down how to podcast very easily for you. That's great. That's awesome. Sure. So then let's let's uh, switch gears a little bit and geek out for a second. Sure. Um, I know both you and I are proud owners of a new device that showed up in the mail last Saturday, and that is, yes. that is the new Apple iPad. Right. So yep. my question, I have a million questions for you on this, but the, the, the top question is how do you, as a typical, you know, typical Shutterbug or typical Mac user, how do you think this device is going to change how people, um, let's see, what's the best way to put it, how people are going to be consuming photography? Do you think it will impact it or is it just, you know, hey, this is another way to browse Flickr? Well, it has for me, just in the last week, I happen to have nine relatives over from North Dakota right now, and I got the iPad, and they all had to wait for the UPS guy with me on Saturday, by the way, but it finally (laughs) did come. And one of the very first things that I did was to, you know, sync this thing with my iPhoto application, 
And I was able to show them some pictures that we had taken the day before at Disneyland. Now, the impact that that had of being able to hand that slate to my 76-year-old mother-in-law and have her swipe it and watch that, that said it for me. This device is going to make that tactile connection between the viewing of pictures and being able to have control of a device. And I saw her using this thing and her eyes lighting up. And I could have done the, thing in my, the same thing in my iPhone but it is not the same impact. So I think for photography, uh, this is going to be a game changer. For guys like me who wanted to see, come on, please take a look at my picture. That's for sure. But for the wedding photographers, for people who have portfolios, certainly it's going to do that. I think it's going to go beyond that. I was uh, editing a photo last night using Photogene, which was one of my favorite uh, iPhone applications. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do some pretty decent damage on this picture within the iPad uh, of a HDR picture that I had taken that needed some tone mapping. And the interface was clearly better on the iPad. They clearly had taken it to the next level. Um, I think this device is going to uh, bring photography and photographers a a brand new way to be able to... uh, to share their work. Yeah, I have to totally agree with that. And you know, one of the other things I was I wanted to ask you on the iPad was, you know, like wedding photographers, and we have a lot of wedding photographers listening to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, in wedding photography, a high end book could cost you, you know, around five hundred dollars, right? Right. Right. So why do you think it's a viable alternative for wedding photographers to consider delivering multimedia albums on an iPad and making that the delivery mechanism to the bride and groom? I think it would be a great way to entice people to go, you can have this and more. Yeah. So I think it would be, what, what a great way to, to produce something like that for them. Uh, I also think that the ability to do cross media there, because this device, as you know, we can now cross video with music. Yes. And so now you have this experience that goes way beyond just, you know, the flicking of a picture on a beautiful pad, but now it becomes a multimedia rich experience. And I think for whatever kind of photographer we have, the clients these days are becoming more and more savvy to this stuff because of YouTube and everything else. And they are demanding this kind of production quality that in the past would have cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to do. Mm-hmm. Today we have the technology in our hands, literally, to be able to give them that experience uh, on a one-to-one basis with the iPads or with several of them as they're viewing, you know, their uh, pre-wedding shots or whatever it happens to be. Yep. All right, Victor, put on your typical Mac user podcast hat for a second. Sure. Um, Still focusing on the iPad with regard to photography, the lack of flash on the device and on the iPhone for that matter, uh, do you feel like that's going to sort of hamstring the device uh, in terms of the the utility that photographers can, can get out of it? Are you talking about Flash as in Flash memory, or are you talking about... Uh, I'm talking about Adobe Flash. The fact oh, I'm the, sorry. Okay. The, the, the fact that the device does not run Flash, uh, meaning that you can't visit or see certain content on the web. I think we're clearly seeing Apple driving the cart, the Apple cart, literally away from Flash. Whether we like that or not, that's a subjective thing. But I think we're going to see sites starting to come up with uh, HTML5 sites that are just as media-rich the ABC application that I got uh, once I got from the iPad, beautiful application, absolutely no flash anywhere to be found. So I think that we're going to see people get really creative about offering the same type of experience with alternative technologies. I don't necessarily applaud Apple's decision to be so hard line about that personally, but I think that if you want to be in play in this sphere, you're going to have to find ways to, uh, of doing that. And I think companies have a financial incentive to do so. 
Gotcha. All right, let's t- let's switch gears away from the iPad. I know people are probably tired of hearing about that all the yeah. time. Yeah. So yeah. let's Sorry, switch gears away from the iPad and listen to the collective sigh of relief from the audience. But um, social media, uh, as it pertains to photographers, um, you've been doing this for a while. You've been, you know, I guess for all intents and purposes, been involved in social media since the beginning and beyond so what do you think the photographers today that are looking at social media like i have to i don't want to be twittering all the time and i don't facebook really you know what should they do from a business standpoint or even from an advanced amateur standpoint to make sure that they're they're uh keeping up with the joneses in terms of how to you know staying out there and up front in social media I think they just have to be themselves and be as real as possible. I think they have to separate their brand from themselves on Twitter. For example, if you are going to represent your brand, XYZ Photography, versus Bob Jones, I think you need to have two separate accounts because Bob Jones may have an opinion about something that your brand doesn't represent. And so personally, I think it's good to not mix those two things up. I Twitter under my name, Victor Cajial. So whatever you read from me, good or bad or indifferent, that's who I am. That's what I believe. But if I were Twittering under typical Mac user, I, I may separate the two. That's just a suggestion that I have. And then just be real. You know, if you're going to go out there just pimping stuff all the time, that people are going to see right through that. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between being transparent. Hey, this is an ad. Uh, XYZ is a sponsor of mine, by the way. You have to do that. Mm-hmm. But if every tweet that you put out is, is self-pimping or is promoting something that you want to sell... People will see through that in 20 nanoseconds, you know, especially people that are hard to ID geeks, geeks, sorry. But if you are just being yourself and through that experience, you're being exposed as a uh, person, people will go and see your work. People will know what you're about. And then the one time when you say, I'm doing a live thing right now, come join me because we're doing VIX, X, Y, or Z, people will go to that because they like you first and your product will just become part of who you are. I find that to be the realest thing. I personally will stop following and, and do stop following people that are there solely for pimping stuff or just retweet schemes, as I like to call them. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, you, it's a, it's an interesting balance that that you have to to walk because mm-hmm. social media is a social experience where you're 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 dealing with people at will because you want to and you want to be listening or following this particular person because you think they have something of value. If the if they if that person that you're following betrays that trust, then it's really easy for you to click that unfollow button and vote with the click, right? <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is, don't hang, get hung up on the statistics. You know, don't go looking every day for how many hits you have or how many more followers. You know that that stuff is just going to happen. It takes time to build that reputation. It takes time for you to find your written voice on Twitter. It's 140 characters. So it's really hard to find your voice there. And then once you do, if, if you can keep it honest, it'll just shine through. And uh, it's really easy when you start a new blog or Twitter or a podcast to just hone in on the numbers. I did it forever. You know what? The numbers are what they are. Just as long as you're putting out what you want to put out, that is at the end of the day, in a social experience, what matters? You wouldn't go back and count how many people talk to you in a party, would you? Right, exactly. If you would. Some people do. <laughs> yeah, okay, you may have a problem. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll, they'll count how many phone numbers they walked away with. At a party. <laughs> well, I think I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Victor, one last thing. Uh, beginners, beginners that are just, that are just, just been bitten by the photography bug, right? You know how mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, I do. What, uh, what advice can you give those folks for 
because there's so much stuff. I mean, when I first, when I started, there was very little. I mean, there are there are tons of books, but there's tons of resources online oh. that can bury you, and you could get you could get uh, paralyzed. You know, you can get the the analysis paralysis thing and never move because there's so much stuff. So help me help me help them focus. You know, as a new photographer, where can they go to start cutting their teeth and not get overwhelmed? Well, for me, it really, I'll give, I'll tell you what I did. Certainly listening to shows like This Week in Photography for me as a newbie was overwhelming, but I stuck with it. So stick with these guys, listen to what they're saying. And if like me, 20% of the time you're totally lost, that's okay. The light will come on somewhere along the way, but stick with that. And then for me, it really was, you know, understanding exposure. Brian Peterson's book, fantastic book that just broke down for me the basics of what ISO is, what an F-stop is, what a shutter speed is. And those things, for me, that foundation really helped. Um, find a good podcast, whether it's uh, your podcast, Frederick, or come listen to mine. I've had some great guests that really do break it down in a way that we, just typical shooters, understand. And do not buy into the, uh, the whole fallacy that better equipment gives you better photography. It yes. does not, period. Whatever you have today, learn with that and everything else will come. Believe me, you'll have plenty of opportunity to spend money in photography. It is a big black hole of cash. <laughs> yeah, because you, you got it coming from both ends. You're the typical oh, Mac dude. user, which means you're a Mac geek and you have to buy all that stuff and a photo geek. So. Dude, don't even talk to me. I, I love gear and I love photography stuff. And, uh, you know, like you said, if you have a DSLR, buy a 50 millimeter 1.8. That's it. Shoot with that for three months. Do nothing else but shoot with that lens. And you've talked about this in your show a bunch yeah. of times. Yep. And it's great advice. So keep it simple, stupid, right? That's Kiss. Right. That's keep it right. simple, stupid works in photography for, for a guy like me who is just an enthusiast. Yeah, that, that's, that's really good advice. And, you know, I would piggyback on that if you just think, you know, a lot of beginning photographers, they may look through the B&H catalog and they'll say, oh, if I only had that, I'd be a great photographer, you know. And in some cases, it's valid because if you're if you're, you know, your your passion is wildlife photography and you're stuck with a wide angle lens, then it, right. can, it can be a little dangerous. Right. Yeah, it <laughs> so, might be a problem. <laughs> so, you know, lusting after the long lens is one thing. But just in general, learning photography, you can do an amazing amount of stuff with just a 50 millimeter lens. You know, so, yeah, definitely don't get mired down in in. Oh, if I only had this big mountain of gear, then I'd be a good photographer because it's it's not the case. And I always, and I sometimes I thought it was, and it isn't. And the more I heard that message, the the better photographer I became. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Go with what you got. So, Victor, where where can people uh, find the the typical Mac user podcast or the Shutterbug podcast? Well, typicalmacuser.com for all things Macintosh. Join us there. We have a great community of about 12,000 people that listen to that show. Or come over to typicalshutterbug.com and uh, come listen to people like Frederick talk about what they love yeah. and listen to me learn from these guys and women. Uh, and Nicole is going to be next month's guest. I do that show about once a month where the typical Mac user podcast gets put out about twice a week. You can find me on Flickr by my old name, flickr.com slash photo slash typical PC user. Ugh, hurt me to say that. <laughs> the typical PC user. I love that, that was my old handle, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Victor, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you were, you've got the relatives there and you had to take the time out to come put on the mic, but thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to do this. I'm honored that you would have me on with the great guests that you usually have on this show. So thank you. You're welcome. 
Okay, that was Victor Cahiao, the typical Mac user and the typical Shutterbug podcast. If you want to check him out, make sure you head over to his sites or search for him on iTunes and subscribe to his podcast. They're they're brilliant. Uh, the typical Shutterbug podcast takes it from like victor was saying from more of an um an amateur or beginner standpoint and and sort of keeps you enthusiastic about this photography stuff and typical mac user is just for the mac geeks in the crowd so be sure to check that out all right guys let's jump into the listener questions and i'm going to throw these around just sort of randomly question number one i'm going to throw to you joseph it's from twip log reader andrew hartwig take it away Alrighty, Andrew asks, uh, I just bought $8,000 worth of new camera gear, which I will take with me on a trip to Europe. Is there equipment insurance I can buy in case it gets lost or stolen? Well, there absolutely is. Um, as a non-professional, I think you could add it to your homeowner's insurance, um, and that should be fairly easy. If you're a professional or you just want kind of the next level of insurance, there absolutely is equipment insurance. Um, everything that I have is insured through a company called Marsh Affinity Group, which... Um, I think I got through um, ASMP or one of the one of the photography associations, and it's it's affordable. I mean, I, I guess the cost overall for the amount of gear that I've got, which is you know, I'm insuring more than he's talking about here, but it's about the cost of a small lens per year. And you figure if uh, your livelihood depends on on keeping that camera equipment around, if everything was to suddenly go away in a puff of smoke because someone broke into your car or uh, the airline carriers decided to make away with it. Having that insurance is absolutely critical. So, yeah, I think, uh, again, uh, for the consumer, you can look at adding it to your homeowner's insurance policy, but certainly for the professional, take a look at something like uh, like Marsh. It's definitely worth having. But I think you have to ask um, your insurance agent, does it cover it out of the country? Does it cover it in Europe or wherever you're going? Because mm. if, if you leave them a loophole, they're going to say, oh, nope, sorry, not in London. Yeah, there's a lot. There's definitely a lot of read the fine print kind of advice on this. Either if you get a writer on your own insurance policy, or even if you get uh, one of these third party people that cater to photographers. I've heard, I read somewhere about somebody who realized that the um, the third party insurance they bought that covered their camera gear was only for still camera gear, didn't cover what they labeled as video gear. These days, with the crossover, you got to wonder what exactly that would mean. Uh, but, you know, just just be really aware. But, yeah, everything I've seen, too, is sort of either adding it as a writer to your own insurance policy or buying it separately. It's going to be, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year probably. So if you're in a situation where you can't afford to lose that, and especially if you think there's a good chance that it would, uh, it's definitely worth looking into. Excellent. All right, Ron, since you're on a roll, why don't you uh, take Michael Erickson? He has a good question there about uh, Windows XP, Photoshop, and Aperture. Michael Erickson wants to know, is it a big step moving from Windows XP and Photoshop CS3 to Mac and Aperture 3, both the process of moving files and learning the new environment? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I'm, I've not been a Windows user for a long time. I don't think that moving from Windows to a Mac is terribly traumatic, and for that matter, I don't think going in the other direction is either. It's all the usual annoyances. Going from Photoshop to Aperture is an interesting question because it's such a different sort of a scenario. Uh, again, I don't think it's difficult, but yeah, it's, you're you're really suddenly going to move from a world where you're probably managing your own photos if you're, you're not using a tool like this to letting some other tool manage them at some level. Uh, net net is, I think, it's absolutely worth it that you're going to love the sense that you know, there's there's a tool out there that really thinks a little bit more like a photographer does rather than just like a regular file system does, uh, and uh, you know. It's, it, it, best case, I suppose, would be to just try it, but obviously you have to go ahead and buy the Mac first to do it if you're going to move to Aperture. 
but you know, I, I would still recommend doing it personally. That's the scenario I have, obviously. So I'm sort of uh, partial to the idea of running Aperture on a Mac. But uh, you know, find a friend and poke around a little bit. Go to the Apple Store if you're really curious, because they can show you a lot about how this stuff works too. Yeah. Joseph, I want to have you piggyback on that question, too. I mean, I know you're not that familiar with XP, but you can at least comment in on the uh, moving from CS3 on the Mac to Aperture 3. Well, I think moving from Windows to the Mac is the best decision you'll ever make, but I'm a little bit biased. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Cupertino, I, I think, Cupertino still flows through those, bra- those, still, bla- <laughs> those uh, veins, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. The candy apple red still runs through the veins. Now, um, I think moving from Photoshop to Aperture... They're very, very different animals. You know, you're you're not going to take much of that learning with you, um, you know, except for technique, like how to do a good clone or something like that, perhaps. But really, it's they're totally different animals. Um, it, a- Aperture is very much a database application that has fantastic editing tools in it. It's a way to sort your files and edit the files that you've got in there. Whereas Photoshop is really just about editing; doesn't have the the database management, so it's a it's a whole different ballgame there. Um, but hey, there's a website for that. Stop by Aperturexpert.com, <laughs> check that out. But um, <laughs> just a small plug. No, but it's it, I think it is going to be the right choice to make if you're a photographer, if you're serious about photography at all. Then getting into a management app like Aperture, um, you know, or going to Lightroom, or even going to iPhoto is going to be a huge step in towards improving your workflow and improving the management of your files than you're getting out of uh, out of Photoshop today. Excellent. All right, there's a second part to that question, uh, Ron Brinkman, about moving from a simple HTML-based website to something more robust like Squarespace. Do you want to take a, tackle that one? Yeah, I'm not uh, an expert on, on either scenario. I've used Square, Squarespace for putting up stuff. I, my gut feeling is that, if anything, it's going to make your life easier. If you've been doing uh, HTML coding by hand, then going to Squarespace is uh, certainly a lot more of a plug-and-play environment but again you know squarespace is so easy to just go try it and see what you think uh i can't imagine that it's not worth spending an hour or two just playing around there and see how it feels yeah 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 there is there's no i mean there's no uh no downside to signing up for a free trial especially since they don't they don't require you to enter a credit card or anything so right you can uh, just jump in there and play around with it and see for yourself all right, uh, question number three is going to go to our special in-studio guest, Mr. Silarina. It's from Oscar Camejo. 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 And Oscar asks, I recently purchased my first SDLR, a Canon EOS Rebel T1i with the kit 1855mm. I also purchased a Prime 50mm f1.8 lens for portraits and people scenes. If I want to do more than... Uh, I want to do more urban landscape and scenic photography. What do you suggest as the next lens to add on a moderate budget? So, Oscar, let me say, hey, welcome to the world of Canonistas. Um, you're a new and dear friend of mine. Um, the thing to remember about your camera is that it has a small sensor. So, if you came from a film background... How do you know that about him? I, I can tell him. from the camera model. <laughs> it, you know, it says T1i, baby. Yeah, T1i. Come yeah, on, yeah. He's got a small... He's got, he's got a 1.6 crop factor. <laughs> Oscar, I really... You know, <laughs> these guys all who are dishing this shoot an icon, apparently. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing to remember about any of these cameras that have a smaller sensor, which is very prevalent. 
Um, in fact, it's more dominant in the DSLR world to have a reduced size sensor than a full 35 millimeter size sensor. So effectively, the focal length of your 50 millimeter lens is really about 80 millimeters. It's a good medium range portrait lens already. Your sensor multiplies the focal length of your lens by about 1.6 if you're comparing them to what that lens would look like on an old 35 millimeter film camera or on a full sensor DSLR. So if you want to shoot wide on that camera, you've got to go to a lens that's like 18 millimeters or 20 millimeters. And you said, okay, I've got to do something on a moderate budget. Um, Keep this thought in mind. It's always better in the long run to pay more money for glass and less money for a camera body. Because if you've got good glass on a crappy camera, you'll have much better images than if you put crappy glass on a great camera body. So the lens I think you should try to get, if you've got to save up for it, it's worth it. Um, Canon makes a 20 millimeter f2.8. Um, it's a prime lens. It's not a zoom. You've got to zoom it with your legs. Um, but that's going to be semi-wide angle on your camera, and it's a good quality, good quality lens. The kit lens you have, um, as I recall, f4 or f5.6. In low light situations, it's not going to be as useful as a lens with a wider aperture, f2.8. And then, hopefully, over time, you'll save up and buy better lenses because I frankly think you need, a, unfortunately, a lens that's going to be like 600 bucks or 700 bucks as opposed to three or 400 bucks. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so while while I have you all warmed up talking about, you know, lenses and stuff like that, and since you're on the show and you're the speed lighting expert, which, by the way, uh, we're probably going to have Syl back on regularly to do a little segment on speed lighting since people seem to like lighting so much. Um, we are photographers. We, we should like something light. Something about recording light that photographers like. <laughs> But anyway, um, if you could give, if you could throw one tip out to the audience, the listening audience, um, that are interested in shooting with their speed lights, that they may have one, but they're afraid to say take it off the camera or something, what what tip would you give them like right now? You know, the number one thing you've got to do is realize that the hot shoe is an evil creation. Okay. <laughs> Do not put your speed light in the hot shoe because that's the absolute worst place to try to illuminate somebody from. I mean, you're absolutely going to be really good at making driver's license portraiture, okay? Mm -hmm. So one succinct tip, just research off-camera flash. And for 15 bucks, you can buy a simple PC sync cord and move your flash off your camera. And that will open up vast vistas. Here's, here's my new mantra. If you want to create really interesting light, you've got to create really interesting shadows. Mm-hmm. We think it's all about the light. It's really how shadows and light dance together. Yep. So move your speed light off camera, create some interesting shadows, and you'll go, wow, this is really great. Silarina, you heard it here first. Look into the shadows to see the light. Awesome. Maybe we'll name that this episode. That might there be the we name go. Of that maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, guys. It's time for the picks of the week. And thanks for that, Sil. Uh, Ron, you want to jump in first? Sure. My pick this week is a book that I actually uh, helped a friend of mine do a little tech editing on. Dion. It, yeah. Yes. My friend Dion Scopatulo, uh, who used to work at, App, at uh, Apple with me. And he has written the Aperture 3 book from the Apple Pro training series. So it's... Uh, Available from Peach Pit Press or online, and, and it's just a really good. I mean, I my my job on it was literally as the tech editor. So what I had to do was 
go through everything that Dion wrote and just double check it for accuracy. And, and as, as a side effect of that, I learned a hell of a lot more about Aperture than I really uh, realized was even in there. So it's uh, it's nicely done. There's a couple of little cameos in the back about uh, interviewing some different photographers. One of them, including, is me. Um, but I suggest everybody go check it out. It's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Very cool. That's up. That's available now, or is it just in pre-order? Yep. Nope. It's shipping now. I just got my copies uh, last week, and it looks like yes, it's in stock and ships from Amazon immediately. Very cool. All right, and that's the Apple Pro Training Series uh, featuring Aperture Three. Correct. Yes. Correct. Thirty-four sixty-four on Amazon right now. A twenty dollars discount. <laughs> Jeez, really? Amazon. Yeah. Even their their volume. Yep. Uh, Sill, you have a pick? I do. I do. I have to confess, I'm actually beginning to dabble once again in the world of film. <gasps> but not true film. Polaroid. Uh, mm. My pick of the week is The Impossible Project, which I discovered a few months ago. These are guys who weren't willing to accept the fact that uh, Polaroid film was going to become extinct. And a lot of interesting things. If you have an old SX-70 camera, for instance, as I do from 25 or 30 years ago, um, if you go to The Impossible Project, which is the-impossible-project.com, you'll find a wealth of resources for your old Polaroid cameras. Or, in fact, they sell new cameras that shoot Polaroid film. And what really called this to my attention is that they have opened a gallery in and a store in New York City. It's actually, they're based in the Netherlands. But last week, they opened a store in Soho. And I'm going to Manhattan in three weeks uh, to teach. So I'm definitely going to check out The Impossible Project Very cool. when I'm in New York City. And that's The Impossible Project. Project.com? Yeah. Dot com. But there's hyphens between all those three words. Uh-huh. The hyphen impossible hyphen project I would, dot com. I would have had to re- resort to Google to find that. <laughs> <laughs> Easy right, enough. The, the impossible project dot com. All right. Excellent. And Mr. Lenaski, what's your tip there? So my pick of the week is the Black Rapid RS5 strap. Black Rapid makes a, a series of straps, a few of them, and we may have mentioned it, or I know we mentioned it on the show after um, PMA a few months ago, but I actually got my hands on one and tried it out, and it is a very, very cool way to carry your camera around. I carried it all over um, all over Singapore and Hong Kong that way, and it's uh, it goes over your shoulder, makes it really, you know, so it's secure, it's, a, it's across your chest. Uh, the camera slips up and down really easily. It doesn't catch on your clothes and you're sliding it around. And it has little pockets in there for memory cards and your phone and, and whatever. So it's a very, very handy little strap. Highly recommend it. Check out blackrapid.com. And I also want to throw a quick shout out to uh, Kenbo Communications. These are the guys who are actually hosting me today. As you can see, I'm in a very white room. The hotel that I'm staying at right now had a very little bandwidth at all. So these guys are down in the San Diego area and they've kindly let me set up camp in here. So... That's that. Oh, and one one more thing. Sorry, I got to throw one more out there. I'm doing a quick um, Aperture, what's new in Aperture seminar this Thursday. If you jump over to ApertureExpert.com, you'll see a sign up for that, and that is going to be in the Bay Area. So check that out. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks, Joseph. Thank you. All right. And my my pick of the week is actually two picks of the week. And one is because the guy in the room here that started this site was probably afraid to say it because he didn't want to self-aggrandize too much. But speedlighting.com is Sil's new site, website or training site. You call it a training site? 
training site on all things Canon small flash photography. So if you haven't seen the site yet and you're a Canon shooter or if you're just any shooter. 80, 80 plus percent of the content is, is non-denominational. So you don't have to be a Canon shooter. No. You don't check, you don't check blood you types at the door? Absolutely not. You're not going to ask for papers? <laughs> um, especially not since I was born in Arizona. <laughs> So they're not going to check you uh, at speedlighting.com to make sure that you're a Canon user. So, yeah, definitely check that site out. It's a free resource, and you can't miss it. Also, as I mentioned earlier, or as we had uh, in the uh, in the guest segment earlier, uh, Victor Cahiao of the Typical Mac User and Typical Shutterbug podcast. Be sure to subscribe to those if you haven't subscribed to those yet and give them a listen. It's really good stuff. And those are my two tips. So I think we're we're coming to the close of the show again. The show goes so fast, so fast. So uh, Ron Brinkman, where can people go to uh, to find out more about you and all the stuff that you're up to? If you're not on Twitter yet, you should go there and check it out because all the cool kids are doing it. And when we get there, <laughs> oh my god, which means follow. now they need to go find something else because Ron right. just said that. <laughs> <laughs> follow me there, Ron Brinkman, R O N B R I N K M A N N. Two ends. Awesome. Joseph Lenaski, where are you online? You can find me at apertureexpert.com and on the Twitters at apertureexpert, all one word. Awesome. Or the travel junkie that says they're on the lower third right now. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of Twitter, you know, multiple personalities. What are you going to do? You're just all over the place, aren't you? <laughs> and Mr. Arena, where are you at? I am all over the place. Um, on Twitter, sill underscore arena, speedlighting.com, as you mentioned. And let me give just a quick shout to all my friends in the Mid-Atlantic, because I'm leaving on Wednesday to go teach in D.C. next weekend to speed lighting workshops. So I'm looking forward to seeing everybody out there. Very cool. All right. And thanks for coming on the show, by the way. It's a blast to be here you, in the uh, cottage. Putting up with my, my yapping in the car all the way up here. Um, and if you're interested in the show and finding out more about TWIP, you can check us out on twiplog.com or fan us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash this week in photography. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van, you can find me on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Frederick Van. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. <laughs> 